0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to A Minute with Coach Riggs. Former T.R. Miller head football coach Jamie Riggs shares his views on all aspects of football after a 40-year Hall of Fame high school career. Coach Riggs and his guests will discuss the latest on the local high school and college teams, the current issues that are dominating high school, college, and NFL football, as well as reliving some of the classic moments and history of the game with the people that made it happen. This is A Minute with Coach Riggs. I want to welcome you to this episode of A Minute with Coach Riggs. Uh, one of the things that we know about the game of football is that um, it is constantly changing. Just the one thing you can depend on that football and the game itself is going to is going to change. And this is true regardless of the level whether it's the uh, NFL or college football or high school football. You can go back and just look what's happened in college football over the last 2 or 3 years with the uh, NIL and the transfer portal and and things like that, uh, college football has turned completely upside down. How you build teams, how you go about uh, trying to be successful now uh, is just completely different. Things that weren't important three or four years ago are vastly important today. We've had a lot of changes in high school football and I have often said that uh, there's been more changes in high school football in the last 10 to 12 years probably than there had been since we started playing in the early 1900s. So uh, what I want to do on this episode today is go back and and, and talk a little bit about what I believe are the top 10 changes in high school football in the state of Alabama over the last decade or so. Now, I would tell you that a lot of these changes have been for the good and i was never one of those guys who believed that the way we used to do it is better than the way we do it now Uh, that's not the case in most things Uh, it is in some situations i can understand that that, that's true but a lot of times us older guys just want to say well it was so much better back in those days and all and there were some things that were better but it's certainly not not everything. I I always believed that the game was changing, and we were always trying to keep up with the latest things that were going on in in the game, and it was hard, uh, because when you'd had the success that our players had had at Miller, and our teams had had at Miller, it's hard to give up some of those things. You know that this thing right here has helped us win, but times are changing. Can we still continue to do that and be successful? So they'll always... Uh, times when we were debating those things, but change is inevitable. All right, So I will take a look at, at what I believe are the top ten things that have changed high school football in the state of Alabama over the last decade or so. I would tell you that the tenth thing is probably the uh, National Federation of High School Network, the NFHS Network. In other words, today we are streaming games on the Internet for people. watch. Today, since I'm not involved in coaching and um, I'm not involved in trying to pay for programs and things like that, the NFHS network is really nice to be able to go on. and I may be at home on a Friday night and I can pick up uh, parts of three or four different games and go from one game to another if I want to. The ability to do that is really just just great. I was on the uh, central board of the Alabama High School Athletic Association. Uh, when the NFHS network got started and, and we had some representatives come and they wanted Alabama involved in it and, and our association did uh, make the effort to, uh, to get schools in Alabama involved in the NFHS network. And at the time, I didn't want to get involved in it with us at Miller. Really uh, there were still some kinks that had to be worked out and so forth and I was kind of taking a weight. And, See attitude about it, but I knew when they started talking about streaming games online that the day would come that the majority of the high school football games would be online. Now, what what's the problem with that? Well, let me take you back to the 50s and 60s a little bit. You know, when we first started having games, high school football games on the radio, you can understand that there was some concern about putting your games on the radio, and the concern was obvious that you worried that people would not come to the games, that they would stay home and listen to it on the radio rather than actually come into the game. So obviously, that's going to hurt, as we call it, the gate or the amount of money that you make at the game. Not only that, but down through the years, people have charged for parking. You got concessions going on, program sales. You know, there's money to be made at the game, but. If they don't come to the game, then you lose some of that money. And the concern was always also uh, if you have bad weather. So if it's a rainy night, your crowd's going to be down some anyway. But if they can go home and listen to it on the radio, then, you know, you you really might have a smaller crowd there. And so that was always the concern uh, about that. And I can give you an example. About 25 years ago, we played Dale County in a playoff game here, and they had a really good team. We played them here in Bruton, and the forecast was for possible thunderstorms and stuff like that. So as the game started, I was kind of keeping my eye on the, uh, uh, the weather as well as the game when it started. And sure enough, after towards the end of the first quarter or something like that, um, it started lightning, and the, the officials took both teams off the field and put us in the locker rooms. If I'm not mistaken, I think, uh, you know, we had some power outages. Those days we were up under the stadium. We put them up under the stadium there and, uh, and had to wait it out. And you know, we were a couple hours restarting the game, you know. And the strangest thing about the game was when all the storm came and it rained hard and all that kind of stuff, you know, all the folks at Miller kind of hung around in their cars for a little bit. When it became obvious that we were going to be a while starting, a lot of them just went home. And then when we restarted the game, they listened to it on the radio. The, the fans from Dale County, uh, they didn't go anywhere because they had nowhere to go, really. They went in their cars. And then when we restarted the game, they came back in the stands. And the strangest thing about the game that night was when we restarted. It was, I don't know, it was probably 9.30 or something before we start, started the game back. When we restarted the game back, the Dale County side was full. They had All their people had stayed and they had brought a nice crowd anyway. A lot of our folks had gone home and we had about, I'm gonna think about a third of the folks uh, in the bleachers that had probably been there before. That was always kind of my concern about that. If you can go home and listen to it on the radio, you might not be showing up at the games. What we found out down through the years that the radio people were right, they did such a good job of promoting the games. And when they they're, they're uh, have the games on their station, they promote them, they talk about them. And what we found out was down through the years that, that they helped bring our crowds generally, you know. Certainly there were some people that stayed home listening to the radio, but it made people want to come to the game and be a part of that. And there were a lot of people who listened to the game while at the game. They would put their you know, their earphones in, and they would listen to the, uh, the, the play-by-play that was going on here. So the NFHS network, there are coaches who still have some concerns about it. There are more and more people doing it. The NFHS folks came out with um, automatic cameras. There are a lot of people doing this with automatic cameras today, and basically the camera follows the action without having anybody to, uh, to operate it. A lot of people are, like at Miller, we pipe in our radio broadcasts. There are other people who have folks doing their TV broadcast uh, or, or online broadcast uh, with live announcers. Uh, some people have uh, students, a lot of them have students doing that, do the whole deal there, almost like a television broadcast. And uh, But there are still some concerns. The COVID thing, a lot of people watched games when we were in COVID, and we've been kind of slow to get our crowds back with some of that. But you know, I talked to a, one coach who's at a, at a big school. They do such a great job. They, they have their own announcers. They have instant replay. They have, uh, you know, they're making up money because they're selling advertisements, which was always a way that you could kind of recoup some of that money. If you had sponsors, the NFHS folks were, were saying, you know, you know, you can do this almost like a TV broadcast, and and you recoup your money that way. But still, coaches would rather have people at the game. And I had talked to one coach at a big school, and they do a great job with their broadcasting all, but. He was telling me that they had gotten to the point that there were some people, supporters of theirs, who might not have kids playing, but they always came to the games. And so what they're doing now is they, they go to someone's house and tailgate, and then they all sit down at that, that person's house, scream the game online and watch it online, and they don't have to you know, fool with parking, getting to the game, and all that kind of stuff. You know? So there are still some concerns there. But the one thing we know is that the NFHS network is here to stay. I think you'll see it getting better and better in the broadcast, uh, getting better and better uh, as an opportunity of a way that you can watch high school football. So that certainly changed high school football So The next thing I would tell you that has changed in high school football is reclassification. I was on the board again up there at the Alabama High School Athletic Association for, I don't know, two or three years. Uh, my last two or three years I coached and you know, reclassification was always a big deal and eventually uh, we had decided to go to uh, seven classes. Now, uh, years ago when I was in high school, throughout the 70s and the early 80s, we were in four classifications, okay, throughout the state. We made the decision, beginning of the 1984 season, to go to six classifications. And what it really did, it really helped competition. Made people liked it. It gave more people opportunities to play deep into the playoffs And we put more teams into the playoffs. And it was just, I think, made a better thing. It it served us very, very well. But the problem with even with six classifications, if you're trying to put about the same number of schools in each classification, what we found out was that in those bigger classes like 6A used to be, if you're at the bottom of 6A, it's just really hard because there are schools in Alabama that have over 2,000 students. There are also some schools who got classified 6A that only had maybe 700 students. So if you're sitting there and and you're at the bottom of 6A, you're, you're competing against teams that have three times the number of students you do. Now in the smaller classifications, you know, that wasn't quite as big a deal. Because to give you an example, like in 3A football, there were a lot of years that from the top to bottom of 3A, there may have been 65 or 68 teams in 3A, there was only, from the top to the bottom, there was only about 75 students difference. So it didn't make a big difference. 5A kind of made some difference, but certainly in 6A, it made a lot of difference. So a few years ago, they decided to go to uh, seven classifications. Uh, They put like 32 teams in the top classification, and there's been some good things about that. Uh, It has certainly uh, helped 6A from the standpoint. We've got some teams who were never able to get to the championship because they were at the bottom of 6A. Now they've been able to play more in the playoffs, get a little further up the ladder, and compete a little better. Uh, That has been good. But one thing that hasn't been so good, as we've seen the last few years, is that uh, there there are three or four teams in 7A that seem to dominate play. But from the reclassification standpoint, um, going to 7 classifications has helped some in 6A and 5A. Down through the years, as a general rule, we had regions and started region play. They tried to put about eight teams a region. I mean, that, that worked out pretty good, and the reason... That worked out pretty good is that it, it gave um, each um, – most of the time we had 64, 65 teams or something in a classification, and so you had eight regions of eight. Every team got seven games that were basically given to them, and they only had to go find three games. Well, as time has gone on here and we changed the classification thing and we pulled people up out of uh, – we made the 7A classification. We pull, teams from the top of 5A up into 6A and teams from the top of 4A up into 5A as as the 7A kind of pulled everybody that way a little bit. What we've ended up with is the fact that, that some regions only have six teams in it or seven teams in it. And so travel becomes kind of an issue of reclassification and what's going on. I know To give you an example, like in 7A, you know, they combined the two schools in Dothan, which gave us another 7A school over there. Before that, Enterprise was like a lone wolf over there in uh, southeast Alabama. They would get put in a classification in 7A, or in their region, excuse me, in in 7A classification. They would get put in a region with Mobile schools or the Bowen County schools. And so now they're constantly traveling back and forth from Enterprise to um, uh, Mobile just to play games. Travel has become an issue with that, and if you, you're in a team that only has, let's say there's only six teams in your region or seven teams in your region, that means you're only going to get five or six games given to you, per se, by the state of Alabama. you got to go out and find the rest of your games. If you're a really good team, you're going to have issues with that trying to find games, and I can tell you Miller, you know, I, I wound us in an eight-team region when I was coaching and, Hey, guys, if we were in a seven-team region and now they only give me six games and i got to go out and find four games, I I can tell you today that Brent Hubbard will tell you that finding games at T.R. Miller is not easy. Our reputation has preceded us, and and I always had difficulty um, finding uh, games. Uh, Part of what we did a lot of times was uh, I I spent just two or three years at times trying to convince coaches to play us. You know, somebody would have a really good year, and I would say, Coach, man, we need to play. You know, know, we could work out to play and uh, and get together, and they'd go, well, you know, I don't know. And and, and what had happened is, you know, we had won enough games that people, as a general rule, didn't really want to play us that much. It became an issue, and so other teams have those issues as well. Now, we've also um, brought competitive balance into it, competitive balance. Is a regulating factor for the private schools, and basically, is that if you have great success, just is use football now, if you have great success in football. And you went to the state championship game one year, and you were runner up in the semifinals the next year, and they're going to bump you up a class. They have a point system; if you get so many points, you get you bump up a class. Uh, that um, ha- has actually worked fairly well. You can if if you go, you move up class and. You don't score many points, or whatever. The next time you don't get very far in the playoffs, and you can go back down. But it has worked to help regulate some of the private schools who are bringing some athletes in, you know. And I'm not saying they're bringing them in illegally. I'm just saying that they're bringing athletes in, and uh, it's always been known that uh, in a lot of private schools, especially, um, there are more students participating in athletics than normally in a public school. So for years we had what we call the 1.35 multiplier. So when they started doing the enrollments and the reclassifications, they took however many students that private schools uh, had and they multiplied it by 1.35, which as a general rule bumped everybody up a classification. The reason they came up with the 1.35, and I was I was involved in some of this back in the late 90s uh, in, in Montgomery when they were doing the meetings about all this. The reason that that came about was that there was a study out at the time that basically said that there were 35% more students in a private school would play athletics rather than a public school. So they set it at 1.35 and it stayed there for years. And I think that has helped, you know, with some of that. And that doesn't help in in all situations. And we'll talk about public and private schools, you know, as far as uh, transfer students all here in a few minutes. Uh, it has certainly, the competitive balance factor has worked fairly well, and I think the high school athletics, although there's been some months in a road, I think that, that it has worked well. That was a concept that came from some other states that had tried that. And uh, so a few years ago when they were looking at uh, the transfer issue and uh, when they were looking at uh, trying to, to keep things competitive, and that's what the central board up there is interested in, things being competitive, uh, this was an, an answer to some of that. So. You know, even today with reclassification, we have a reclassification show <laughs> that that takes place. You know, every two years that you can go online and see the show when they reveal all of the things, and it's it's a big deal. You know, coaches uh, try to get. Uh, there's always rumors about so and so has the numbers, so and so has this, and what they do to reclassify is they take the enrollments um, from the state department of education in the first part of the school year. Private schools, they turn their own numbers in. That's the way they get the numbers. They put all the numbers together and they come up with the classifications. I've been up there at the meetings when they reclassified and they have these boards of the state of Alabama and they've got, you know, pins about where, you know, we've got a 3A board and we've got the teams that are supposed to be in 3A. And so we've got to find, try to get them in, in regions that are fairly close together because of travel so forth. So there's just a lot of uh, issues in dealing. They, they put a, a tremendous time and effort, uh, the Alabama High School Athletic Association does, in trying to get schools uh, reclassified. So that's certainly been a change that has gone on, that has, certainly has changed high school football in Alabama. The next thing I would I would say that has changed is the safety guidelines. Now, player safety and uh, the legal concerns been in the forefront over the last decade. It really started with the concussion issues and the protocols uh, that came about over a decade ago. Now, the way the whole concussion, the, the, the way the concussion thing got started was the uh, number of former players sued the NFL uh, over the concussion issues, that they knew that concussions were going to cause them great problems in the future, that they didn't properly monitor it. They encouraged... Uh, people to play who had concussions and so forth. It was a class action suit, It's a billion dollar settlement and part of the settlement was that the NFL would uh, put so much money into educating particularly high school teams, high school coaches, high school trainers about the dangers of concussions. All of a sudden we had these people coming down, you know, watching us in high school Encouraging, And the states did that. They all came up with concussion rules and laws and things like that. Uh, there was some good and some bad with that. I think the good part about it was it brought attention to an issue that needed some attention overall. And and I think that, that was that was good. And it made us reevaluate in high school exactly how we were doing that. But if you'll go back and remember, some of you that can, 20 years or so ago before the concussion uh, issue started, did you ever see a college football player who ever sat out a game because of a concussion? Very, very unusual. Even today, how many guys do you see that's not playing this Saturday in a college football game because he's in the concussion protocol? You don't see much of it even today. right? In, in the NFL, you see more of it. We had, of course, the two of controversy this year but you have more of it because they have a procedure. They've got neurologists on the sideline. They've got the whole deal. Um, they're, they're very cautious and careful about it, obviously because they had been, been sued one time, so they have a whole thing in place. Down through the years, I always thought that in high school, we did a better job of this than anybody else, and I can, I can tell you from a standpoint that every place I ever coached, if we had a kid, I mean, by the way, let me just stop here and say, most concussions happen, during games, you do have some that catch you happen during practice, but you're in a more controlled environment. It just you you have less of that in practice. You do have more in the games. And every place I had ever been, if you got a concussion in a game, you sat out a week. You, know, you didn't do anything for a week, and then you know the next week you would you would be able to come back and play. So you you basically got got it two weeks. And my procedure at Miller was that um, if we had someone who got a concussion in a game on Friday, you know, I didn't let them do, we didn't let them do one thing the next week. They didn't run, jog, lift. They didn't do anything the next week. And then the following week, all right, we would start letting them do a few things like jog a little bit. They could come back to practice and start doing some practice. But we'd never let them have any contact that week. And then usually by the end of the week, get them, Sent to a physician, the physician would clear them to play, and they could play in the game. So that's kind of the procedure that we use down through the years. Occasionally, I would have someone. I had this happen back in the mid nineties one time. We had a really good linebacker who who had a concussion during the game, and it was you know he sat out two weeks. He's fixing to come back. I just didn't like what I saw from him, and I sat down and talked to him and said, "Hey, look, I, I don't think you're ready yet." Yeah, I'm not going to play you this week again. And you know, He was fine, he, and I think he understood that. He said, Coach, I understand. So we sat him out an extra week, but you know, as a general rule, that was kind of the way we handled that. Occasionally, they would clear a guy after a week, depending on what was going on. We might consider that, but for the most part, everybody sat out one whole week of practice, games, and everything before they came back. And when you didn't let them have contact the second week, really never had any problems after that. But I thought high schools did a pretty good job of that. But it is good that we have a procedure now that we can follow and handle all that. And you have to watch those things uh, and, and keep an eye on that. And most coaches have been around a while. Uh, they, they see a collision. Uh, they know what causes concussions. They see a collision um, that, that might cause a concussion because a player didn't see a lick coming or something like that. You know, we're pretty quick to jump on that. So that has, has been good there uh, been a lot of discussion about hydration and heat going on. We, we know so much more about that these days than we did even 20 years ago. The state has mandated, uh, you know, less contact and practice. Some of that is from concussion stuff. Some of it is also about heat and humidity, and particularly in South Alabama. Uh, we have to uh, pay attention to that, go strictly by the state guidelines, make sure that we keep our players hydrated. Those kind of things. We just know more about all this than we, we did at one time. And uh, the state has done a good job. Um, when I say the state, I'm talking about the Alabama High School Athletic Association of keeping coaches uh, educated about all that and what is going on with that so so that we understand uh, you know that, that there are players that we, in particular we need to watch about heat and hydration and not letting them get in situations that could be uh, dangerous to them. The COVID epidemic. Um, caused us to have to look at every aspect of our health and safety when it comes to teams. It certainly helped us understand the importance of cleanliness. Okay, there were, there's been a lot of places, even places I worked down through the years, where cleanliness was pretty tough. I mean, it was just it was, you know, you got a bunch of men and guys working around. It's harder to to deal with that uh, the cleanliness aspect. But it did make us understand that. Another part of safety that has taken place in the last few years is everybody today has emergency plans. So if you have an injury on the field, you need to get an ambulance in there. Uh, you have a detailed plan about how you're going to do that. You know, who's going who's gonna to make the telephone call, maybe who's going to call the parents, um, you know, where's the ambulance coming from, uh, how it's going to get in and get on the field if you had an injury of some kind like that. And so we had those plans, and we would practice those and so to make sure that everybody had that. And so emergency medical plans are important, and people do that. But today we've got more athletic trainers than we've ever had before, which uh, really is, is is tremendously helpful. Um, and it's been a slow to get that done, but we have got that done. I know when I went to uh, Houston Academy in Dothan, they didn't have a, a trainer over there. And I was kind of shocked by that, that. We had a private school that didn't ha- didn't have a trainer. And one of the first things I did over there was... Uh, to get involved with Encore Rehab and get them to get us a a full-time trainer that we could have. Uh, One issue about safety that is is an issue with some of the older coaches, a lot of the older ones are are really concerned about that we keep starting earlier and earlier playing football games. And I have a veteran coach, a friend of mine, who just told me, we have no business playing a full high school football game in the middle of August. Certainly know where he's coming from, so there's still some concerns about that. But for the most part, in state of Alabama, our coaches do a really nice job of getting our players prepared for the heat and humidity, and that's one reason why I think we now do as much as we do in the summer. Um, there were there were times in the past, you know, years ago. I, listen, when I first started coaching uh, in in the nineteen late 1970s, you couldn't even go in the weight room with a player. Whatever he did, he had to do on his own. You could open the weight room up and let him go in there. You could write a workout on the board, but in theory with the rules, you couldn't force him to do it. And he would just go in and do what he, he wanted to do in there, and you couldn't go in there with him. You know, from a liability standpoint, we know today that probably wasn't very good, but but that was the rules at the time. You couldn't you couldn't do anything at all in the summer. And we would start practice the first of August. We got folks hadn't done, done hardly anything at all since the end of school. So there were some issues with some of that, and gradually they started letting coaches do more in the summers. And in the last uh, 15, 20 years, uh, we've got to the point now that we, we uh, basically practice a good bit of the summer with some breaks involved, but you get to practice and do some things uh, that has really helped with heat acclimation, which has been things. So as a general rule today, I would tell you that uh, football is uh, as safe as it's ever been. And coaches, I think, in Alabama have generally done a really good job of trying to to deal with that and spend it because they spend a lot of time dealing with health and safety of the players these days. The next thing I would say that um, has changed over the last decade or so is just parents. You know, I I always said that basically players didn't change a whole lot through the course of of time. Their circumstances changed. You know, the parents changed, the uh, society changed. Um, Parents have certainly, the way they look at particularly high school football has changed. A lot of that has to do with um, media and so forth. But the demands of parents for the team to win and their son to receive playing time, and in some cases, particularly early playing time, for them, that that son to excel and uh, to receive an athletic scholarship after a senior season, those things are increasing uh, each year. In some situations, a um, parent will will think, you know, that their child should be playing more than he is, and they'll start threatening to take him to another school, and uh, you just didn't really have a lot of those things back 20, 30 years ago. Occasionally, you might have some of that, but it didn't happen very often. Today, it's becoming very commonplace, certainly becoming commonplace in, um, around cities, and you know, there's so many schools in a, in a small radius. There are a lot of p- parents who, um, just don't really get the big picture anymore they don't understand the value of the the experience and and all the things you learn from playing high school football and they, they just don't really care very much anymore working your way up from the bottom to the top is not a concept that a lot of parents even believe in today you know they immediately want their their children to play uh they're very quick to criticize other other players other other the coaches and so forth that's going on now there's still a lot of good parents out there, and there's still a lot of good parents that support uh, the team, the coaches in any way they can. But that number's beginning to dwindle a little bit, and the whole thing of the college football experience and the scholarship and it has really driven some parents just absolutely crazy. And so we've been pretty fortunate, you know, down through the years, of, you know, everybody, every coach has had difficult parents. Over, over different things, and I can give you a lot of stories about difficult parents, but I can also give you a lot of stories about really good parents. And so they're both out there, but there's there's just a bigger thing today about parents wanting their children to get um, college scholarships and football scholarships. And uh, when that doesn't happen sometime, or it doesn't happen at the level that they want you know, then they're they're obviously uh, very upset at times, and so parents have become an issue, a bigger issue than they had in years past. Another thing that has changed in high school football is practice. The way we teach the game on the field uh, has changed. Today, you can practice almost uh, every day during the summer in shorts and helmets, and we have seven on sevens, and some teams have OTAs, organized team activities with other schools, and so. They'll get together with another school. They might do some seven on seven stuff, which is kind of like you know touch football passing. Um, the linemen will go down there against each other and do some things. Although they have helmets on, they don't have anything any other pads on. They'll get together and do some team things. And Basically, what happens is one team will run their offense. The other team over here will be on defense, and they have to kind of you know you're not out there with pads, so you have to be careful about how you know how aggressive you're going to be with those things, but just that, that overall thing uh, has, has helped some schools get prepared for the season. Usually if you're going to do an OTA with somebody, you're going to do that with one of your coaching friends, and you, you understand y'all are there to help each other. And usually you're going to do it with somebody you don't play during the regular season. So those things, uh, when organized right, can, uh, can be very helpful. Uh, you know, we have state guidelines about spring drills and uh, preseason practice, including the number of days in pads. Uh, the amount of full contact that you can have, and uh, certainly practice time uh, limitations. Two a days are really almost non existent anymore. And uh, at one time, uh, two a day practices were a staple, and a lot of coaches just believed in them. It's the way they brought their teams together, and there was just a lot of going on with, with, with two a day practices. But you see very little of that now with the early starting dates of school. And with all the days that you can practice in the summer. And so there are a lot of folks getting seven weeks of practice essentially in the summer. The need for two a days, which were always in shorts anyway, the need for two a days has just, just about disappeared. There are just very, very few folks uh, doing uh, two a days. Now in the state of Alabama, we can eliminate spring practice and start preseason drills a week earlier if we choose. So, in other words, you can start, we've always started. Uh, fall practice, usually the first Monday in August. Well, now you can start the Monday before that if you want to, if you didn't do any uh, spring practice. When COVID hit and we did away with spring practice in the spring of 2020, teams found out that, okay, maybe spring practice is not as necessary as a lot of us thought it was. And so there were a lot of folks just said, well, you know what? We've got all these conflicts with spring practice about other sports and different things going on and all. We might just do away with spring practice, not do much spring practice, and just start fall practice a week earlier. And so there's been some change in philosophy about, about some of those things. Coaches you know, can, can even work with athletes two hours a week now in the offseason, which can be great to help some of the younger players develop, but also leads to a whole host of other issues with other sports. And so kids that are playing multiple sports can't really do that, but if you have a guy done not, not doing anything but playing football, you can work with him two hours a week. As a general rule today, you know, teams today practice much less in full gear. They have, have less contact, less live blocking and tackling than ever before. The, the, the bad part about that is less practice, less contact, you're not going to be as good at it. That's why a lot of times you see some, some real high-scoring games, these days, especially early in the season, Teams just hadn't had enough tackling practice, and they're just not very good tacklers at all. So that has, has kind of uh, become an issue from, from that standpoint. There are teams now that basically after six, because we start so early, after about six or seven days of being in full gear, they actually are playing games. Today, though, we practice a lot in, sho- in what we call shells, which is helmet shoulder pads. And you have on what we call a girdle with hip pads. Now you guys that played them said you have hip pads and you have thigh pads and even some of the girls have knee pads on top of them. And you can practice in those. And so you're not tackling a lot of people to the ground. And so you can they do a lot of practicing. And you can pretty well practice and, and, and do just about everything you need to do uh, in shells. Um, but one of the things that has helped having less contact particularly in preseason practice all is we have less injuries and so teams as their rosters have started dwindling a little bit coaches looking for ways to get more kids to play and looking for ways to keep them healthy, and so less full contact days has has certainly helped with that so the way we practice today has has changed things um I don't think it's changed the way you know the skill levels that we're using are as great as it's ever been. Uh, There are a lot of coaches that believe that things aren't as overall a lot of teams aren't very tough or as tough as they used to be, and so that's that's been an issue. But uh, practice has certainly changed in the way we we operate. Something else that's uh, certainly changed in high school football is social media thing. You know, years ago we didn't deal so we didn't have to deal with social media parent got upset about something, they'd go around and t- start talking to folks. But we didn't have to deal with social media. When social media started out, coaches looked at it, and, and they were right, and they still do this today. Uh, coaches will tell you that um, it uh, social media allows you to promote your program and players in your community and beyond in ways we really couldn't have dreamed of 15 years ago. If you want to publicly compliment one of your players or you will publicly compliment your team, you just go on Twitter and put you a picture on there or something, and, and, and thank them and everything, and all of a sudden it goes out all over, you know, all over the place. Parents, grandparents, uh, people in the community in Bruton, and, and all get to see that just as if before you'd had to put all that in a Bruton standard. Uh, now you can do that on things like Twitters. Uh, you know, after games, parents are constantly posting pictures of the players and taking pictures of them after the big win. You know, teams can now thank sponsors and allow hundreds of others to be aware of the sport of that sponsor, okay, by putting it out over, over social media. Players can promote and take highlights of their games and put them out there on the, uh, on the Internet, put them out there via Twitter and, and different place, and, and a lot of the colleges are picking that stuff up. And, you know, there are actually guys who are getting uh, college football scholarship offers occasionally And it all started with a college coach somewhere seeing highlights of this guy on Twitter. There are just a lot of things that are really good, really positive about social media. The other side of the fence of social media uh, can really be uh, pretty rough at times. And and this was something the latter years of my career I had to deal with. I didn't really, I I would go and listen to clinics and listen to coaches and, and people present things about this because I didn't really know what was going on, what I was dealing with when all this first started. Players sometimes will, on their own accounts, uh, put vulgar messages out there, uh, messages promoting themselves, criticizing their teammates, uh, criticizing uh, coaches. Uh, certainly, you know, when I was at Miller, we had some of that stuff going on at times. Parents blaming coaches uh, for losses, talking about we're not throwing the ball enough, and. We're not doing this, we're not doing that. If a parent's child is not getting the amount of playing time they think they ought to get, and let me just give you this as a general rule, what parent rule, and I, I had this parent rule for a long time, and I tried to. I really tried to um, make people understand this. That's a general rule in most sports. the athlete is not as good a player as the parents think he is. Okay, It's just a general rule. This particular true in baseball. <laughs> it, it, we're not as bad in football. there's a general rule. Most folks think their player, their son, is a little better than he actually is. Okay, and that's okay. And I say that because I, when I talked to a parent about this, I, I went with that idea that he actually, I don't think he's quite as good as they think he is. And so it helped when I started talking to them about how to how to deal with the issue or the problem that we might have. Some coaches are using social media to encourage uh, players from other schools to come to their school. You know, they'll do some kind of camp and they're trying to get everybody to come to the camp, and they're doing that to try to try to encourage that. We've even had an Alabama High School let so say, you know we had a coach who was caught doing that. He was actually texting a player at another school, you know, trying to get him to come, and we know that some of that stuff goes on. Using social media media and monitoring it, and not only monitoring it, but, but monitoring everybody associated with your program has become a real, real big issue for coaches and trying to keep up with all that stuff. And, um, you know, at the end of my career, I kind of, Jerry tried to talk to players about that and have some, some general rules about that. So that kind of stuff, something new was coming up with that, like all the time. You know, I've had people uh, send me on my cell phone pictures of some of my players out drinking beer. You know, you never knew with with the social media, cell phone stuff. You never knew what was going to be around the next turn tomorrow. Things that we were dealing with that we in the past you know just didn't know anything about. So, the whole social media and the internet thing has certainly been a change in high school football and it's something that coaches have to spend some time dealing with, you know, I used to have some guys that generally helped me monitor some things, you know. I didn't want to monitor what all the players were doing, but I would have somebody to kind of do that. So, you know, occasionally they'd come to me and say, Coach so-and-so's putting this out there and everything. You might want to talk to him about that. He'd come in, I had a conversation with him about what was going on and what he was putting on there. He needed to get this off and I put those kind of things on there. I would tell you that probably the fourth greatest change in high school football state of Alabama has been the use of technology and video on the sidelines. And the coaches will tell you now this is a, this is a game changer. Uh, in previous years, a coach that could stand on the sideline, watch a game, and see what the other team was aligning in or what kind of blocking scheme they were using or how they were hurting your defense, uh, or whatever, that guy's worth his waiting go. I mean, he really wasn't. Some coaches were. You know, coaches are are good at different things, and uh, but those guys, I, I've had some guys that were really good coaches who weren't particularly perceptive, uh, you know, on Friday nights as far as recognizing what was going on, how we're going to make changes. But they were really good at teaching the players during the week and coaching the players. Those guys that were do that, they were just really valuable. And we always wanted a guy you could put up in the press box, and and. Because he could see more. He could see all 22 players better than you can on the sideline. If you've never stood on the sideline down there, or at least stood by the fence down there, and tried to watch what's going on down there, you know, our viewpoint's not great all the time. There would be things that would happen on the other side of the field, especially my my older days. I, I couldn't tell you exactly what was going on over there. Today, you can be able to video the game and shoot the video to TVs and iPads on the sideline. So that and you you've been to games in the last two, or three years, you've seen all this going on. Well they've got the big TV setups. I know what Miller, we have that, and I just about everybody does now. And, you know, you can come and, and sit down and see what's going on. We can watch the last few plays of, of our offense over here. We can sit down some of the offensive linemen and so forth and and do that. So it has it really uh, changed the way things happen. Not only that, but you can do it inside uh, at halftime. You, know, you can have a setup inside at halftime so that you can go over some things with them at halftime. And so it's a, it has become a, a huge deal. You know, I can recall, I'll tell you this quick story. In 1983, I was a defensive coordinator. At T.R. Miller it was my first year back as an assistant coach. We went down to play UMS, and Mac Champion was the coach at UMS, one of the great, great football coaches uh, of all time. Justin Lambert that played with us, um, and, and I think, graduated in 2002. But Justin played with us. He was his grandfather. And he was one, just one of the great, great, great football coaches ever in the state of Alabama. And Coach Champion basically ran two plays, okay? <laughs> he basically ran two plays. One of them was a reed play. where. Basically, his quarterback's going to take the ball out from under the center, going to go down the line of scrimmage. The back is going to hit right off tackle, and he's going to read the defensive end. And he would run this play over and over and over and over. He had different – sometimes the quarterback would hand it off. Sometimes he'd keep it. Sometimes he'd pitch it out there. It was a basic option concept. He was just really, really good at teaching them to do that. So we had worked on it. We went down to, to play the game at UMS. And we just, it's like every play, they're making three, four, five yards. They keep making first downs. And uh, we were scored on offense every time we cut the ball. But we were having a hard time getting the ball back from UMS. So, anyway, we ended up winning the game. And um, when the game got over, I just, I, I didn't know, I can remember in the game, our defense was supposed to tackle the fullback. And I can remember Dwayne Hammock telling me, Coach, I can't get him. He's too far back down inside. So, and, and I couldn't understand that. He was supposed to be right outside the tight end, exactly where he was going, and all. do it. So anyway, uh, in those days, the way we got our film was, uh, we would, after the game, we would put it on the bus. They would send it to Mobile. They would develop it, put it back on the bus, and it would show up in Bruton sometime late Saturday afternoon. And so Saturday night, I just couldn't wait to see. I, I, just, I had to go see what happened and why we were having such a hard time stopping them. I remember... Mike Sasser was the head coach, called Mike said, so Mike, I'm going to the bus station and get the film. And I went down there and found the film, took it home, got projector. you know, in those days. We didn't have DVDs, we didn't have videotape. We were on film. Got the film and started watching the game and find out what happened. And I learned a lot of things from that. But what I'm trying to tell you is today, you don't have to wait to find out till Saturday night. Today, <laughs> you can go on right now, all right, and go to the iPad. And watch the play. And I know in 2017, I went up and helped Michael's coaching uh, up at uh, Leeds. I went up there and helped on that fall. And I would stand on the sideline with an iPad, and it was about one play behind, you know. And so in between, while we'd be huddling or getting whatever, I'd be watching a play, you know, what happened on this play and who missed their block and that kind of thing. So it's truly a game changer. Um, and as one coach always told me, you know, you used to love to have that guy in the press box that really helped you. Well, today the most valuable guy is not the guy in the press box. The most valuable guy is the guy who can fix this stuff if it's not working right. All right, you got to have a technology guy to come in, set everything up, and get it right. And if there's a problem, fix the problem. Especially if you have a problem in, in the middle of the game. The use of technology and video sideline has changed the game of football. It really hasn't. Last thing I'll tell you about that is. We were late kind of doing this in one sense, the technology had been out there for a while, but the National Federation of High Schools really, really was hesitant about approving this because this stuff costs money. The whole idea was that, you know, teams that have bigger budgets that have more money are gonna be able to afford more stuff. And teams that are in a poor community or something that don't have much money They might be able to afford some of this stuff, and it gives the team with the most money an advantage. And I was really surprised that they went to this. I mean, I really was. And so, you know, we may see the day come, you know, again, where you've got, uh, like the NFL, you've got stuff in their, you know, uh, earpieces in their helmet, and coaches can talk to the quarterback or somebody, you know, during the game. So we don't know where it's going, but the use of technology video on the sidelines has certainly been a game changer. Next thing is probably transfers and recruiting in high school football. The last decade, this has just kind of exploded a little bit. Whether they're going to private school or public school, doesn't, doesn't matter anymore. Used to, the, the big talk was about the private schools for years. Now, the same thing's happening in the public schools. Uh, players leaving one school and transferring to another is, is just kind of rampant. And it's it's not just in Alabama. This is going on across the nation. now. Isn't general rule, parents like this. If our team's not very good, maybe we can help find some people and get them in school, and we'll be better. I understand that. Um, if our school's not very good, um, and I want my son to play on a winner, you know, I can take him and transfer him and put him in another school. I get that. Sometimes we think that if we play on this team, they're a better team, more pro, high profile and all. He'll get looked at uh, for a college scholarship more than in this, The 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 small school, okay, you know some that may be true. Today, the idea that um, we love our school and we play for our school is really changing, and the coaches are able to hang on to that today um, are really to be complimented. Uh, Today, there's much more me stuff going on, and there's much more, you know, hey, I need to move to this team again because we're not going to be very good, or. I'm not going to get to play. I'm not going to get to start this year, so I'm going to leave my school and go over here rather than trying to work towards that position. So there's a tremendous amount of transfers and stuff going on. And the Alabama High School Athletic Association will um, they will contact schools and ask for their list of transfers, you know, and, and look. Because if you, if you get a situation where all of a sudden you get a team that get a bunch of transfers in, whether it's legal or not legal or whatever, it changes the landscape. It changes the the competitive balance of things when when that goes on. So it's an issue. there have been a lot of trying to come up with some some answers to this issue. Back a few years ago, it was suggested that um, that everybody who transfers schools would be declared to be ineligible, and you would basically have to um, the the school that. Players leaving would have to sign off on them. In other words, they'd have to say, "We know this person." You know, the father took another job over here. The whole thing was legitimate. But there was too much opposition to that. And uh, you know, I, I was talking to a coach not long ago. Part of the, the issue today is we got younger coaches we started coaching in the last ten years that they think that the you know the way to win is to uh, to get players and to convince players to uh, come to your school and. Um, it's, it's wrong and still illegal in the state of Alabama to recruit a player, but they have such great difficulty proving it today uh, that someone was recruited. And we still get issues occasionally about bona fide move. That means that if in order for me to be eligible at a certain school, I have to move in this school district or I have to sit out a year to be eligible in that school district. So it's a problem. There are no good answers. Some, some states have gone to, basically, at the beginning of the school year, letting you um, go anywhere you want to. just because it was out of hand. They couldn't monitor it anymore, so they tried to just kind of uh, make it uh, legal to be able to do But it has changed the landscape, and you'll see there are some teams today who are great football teams that a few years ago were very average teams, but they're getting a lot of move-ins and a lot of transfers now. And b- the last thing about that is, as a general rule, you know, um, you can't do anything about parents going out and recruiting other parents and kids to come to, to a school. And, 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 you know, there's nothing nece- necessarily uh, wrong with that or illegal about that. You know, they're just promoting the school and wanting people to come. Uh, but they have to, to, to legally move into the school district, you know, in order to make that happen. But that's where a lot of a transferring and recruiting and stuff like that goes on these days but is by parents. Who who that and because today we play a lot of travel ball and things with other sports, you know, it's real easy. You know, we've been playing travel ball with this, these folks for three or four years. We know them well, we spend a lot of time with them. We start trying to convince them to come to our school, you know, because in addition to being a good baseball player, he's a very good football player. So, there's a lot of that that goes on, and and again, nothing illegal or wrong necessarily about that. All right, we're down to the last two two big things that have changed in high school football, and the, the second. I think biggest change that's gone on is the spread offense. Y'all that sit back there and say, "Well, how come we took them so long to do that?" Well, it's all about rule changes. And uh, in the uh, late '70s, early '80s, the NFL started changing their blocking rules to allow people to use their hands when they blocked. The colleges started all that back in the late '80s. In the high schools, I think 1992 is the first year that we came out and said that you could use any kind of hands. So it's been kind of slow going around. A lot of the coaches were hesitant about doing that. Our, our players aren't as big as the ones they have in college. We can't just grab and hold people, and uh, we were concerned uh, about the aggressiveness of our teams if we try to get them to coach with too much, you know, use too much hands in their blocking. But it was something that kind of gradually everybody started working towards. It took the officials a while to kind of get used to that rule too about what was holding last year is not holding this year. When you could go and and use your hands, it allowed you to hold on the blocks a little better and it allowed you to be able to have more offense. And now you can spread people out and force people, and particularly if you had a quarterback that can do it, Get the ball out there, spread people out, force people to widen their defense, and you can run the ball back up in here a little bit more. So the spread of offense has just changed the X and O parts of high school football. If you have three or four really good athletes, you can get them the ball out there in space and you can score some points. But the number one thing you got to have, whether it's high school, college, or whatever, is a quarterback that can run and throw. And if you got one, he can transform your team from a loser into a winner. With all the seven-on-seven stuff in the summer, you work on your pass offense You know, against other teams, even out there in, in July. You can still be successful if you're kind of short on linemen because if they learn how to use their hands and you can spread the ball and get it out of the box, some, it gives them a little bit better chance. The RPO game has been a big one. That stands for run-pass option. Basically what it is is either before the ball is snapped or even after the ball is snapped sometimes, the quarterback makes a read that he's either going to hand the ball off. and He's in his shotgun now. He's going to hand the ball off or he's going to throw some kind of quick pass down the field. That's kind of changed things. Now, it really made it difficult for defense to be able to play zone pass defense. It almost made you play, and teams are really good at it, man-to-man pass defense and some teams don't have those guys that can play out in space a little bit more and cover people man-to-man. And so it really put a lot of pressure on uh, defenses and defensive co- uh, coaches and coordinators uh, and put pressure on them to try to work hard and come up with some new concepts and coverages, which they have generally done. Defenses are adjusting to the spread and, and, and doing a better job of defending some of this stuff of every year. Another thing that has changed with spread offense is fast-paced tempo. Uh, it's led us in high school to have a 40-second clock now. And, uh, but it has created some concerns about the number of plays in a game. And it's just for teams so a class of the smaller classification, 1A, 2A, 3 and so forth. All these guys are playing on both sides of the ball. It's hard to fast tempo. You know, you watch that stuff on Saturday and you say, well, this stuff's great. We ought to be doing some of that. But for the smaller schools, it's just hard. Because your guys are playing on both sides of the ball and if you start running fast, you're going to give out a gas. you got to have to rest sometime. And so that's kind of kind of been a lot of discussion there. in the 6A and 7A and 5A you got a lot of guys playing on just one side of the ball and so you can do that and that concept has has done what's happened is you have more plays in a game and so there's been some discussion about how many plays should there be in a high school football game if we, if we start running fast, we create all this these more plays. Chances are you're going to have more injuries and so forth going on. It's going to make the game a little more dangerous. And so there's been a lot, of, a, a lot of talk about some of those things. And today, like even the smaller schools, they'll fast tempo some, but they don't do it very often. It might be we make a first down, we're going to go to the line of scrimmage, call a play, and go with it. And that might be the only time that they do that. So coaches have been pretty smart about that. Some people have had success with that. Other people have less success with that. But the spread offense has just changed football. It's led to more scoring. and led to a more exciting game sometimes. It's also led to more blowouts. Spread offense has certainly changed uh, high school football and has changed it in the state of Alabama. And, and uh, we've got a lot of coaches that know a lot about uh, the spread and and how to do it, how to put pressure on people, and they, they do a good job of coaching it. Okay, and the final thing that I believe is, uh, has changed high school football in the state of Alabama is, is technology. And by technology, I'm really talking about the word Huddle, H-U-D-L. Huddle is the online software company that has allowed coaches to video their games and practices and put them on the internet immediately for players and coaches to study. Um, In the old days where I used to um, uh, agree, we were going to play a team and we would agree to swap films. In other words, we're going to give him two or three films of our games. He's going to give me two or three films of his games and the You know, I'd talk to him like on Thursday usually or something. We'd set up the meet on Saturday morning. I would leave. I'd go halfway to Andalusia or I'd go halfway to, you know, to Jackson or somewhere, you know, and we would get over there and and sit. We'd stand there and talk for 20 or 30 minutes or something and swap the films and leave. That's one, I did that every Saturday. When things like huddle and all came about, we no longer had to do that. We could swap the film on the internet. I'm going to tell you, that was a great thing. I, I, I like traveling some and seeing the other coaches and stuff like that, but hey, I can talk to him on the phone. It was great on Saturdays not to have to get up and drive. Sometimes I'm driving an hour, you know, on Saturday mornings to go swap films with somebody. Technology, particularly Huddle, that group has has just changed things. The ability to film your practice today and go home and watch it on the computer, <laughs> it was just great. And you can send clips and make what we call cut-ups. Uh, and send them out to to players. So uh, you can uh, now break down film. We always broke down film. So give you an example. Defensive coaches always watch the other team's offense, and they would take a sheet of paper. In the old days, we'd take a sheet of paper, and we'd write first and 10, write the formation, the hash mark, what play they ran, maybe the result of the play out here or something. Okay, and we would do all that. We'd get those yellow legal pads. We'd do all that stuff down there. Then we would say, okay, what plays they run out of this formation? And we would write the formation or draw it up, and here's the plays they're running to this side, and the plays they run to this side and do all that stuff. And it, it took a while to do all that. With Huddle, you can do it all on the Internet. You can do it online, all on the computer. And uh, we even have a thing now that they have called Huddle Assist. You send a copy of a game to Huddle, to their, their mainframe deal. They have people who do nothing but break down football film all the time, and they will go on there, and they will put all that information on there for you. Yeah, you pay a fee for it. But, oh, my goodness, you're talking about helping with, with time. So it has just changed the way that we operate. And, and the thing about a huddle is you can sit down and watch film. You can do it on your phone. You can do it on your computer. You can do it on your iPad. You can do it anywhere. And, you know, I could be sitting anywhere in the, in the world. If I got internet on my phone, I can pull up the game from last night. I can pull up our opponent from next week and watch that film and 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 do that. And so it's just really gave you so much flexibility with that and the ability to send that stuff to your players. You know, we could take it and say, okay, you know, this week uh, uh, this team does a really good job of running this play. we got to stop this play. And you could send them – 20 clips of your opponent this week running that play and they could go in log into huddle go to their account pull that thing up and watch it i'm just and they can do it on their phones and that's where a lot of the players watch the film they watch it on their phone it has just changed the way that that you operate Um, and and really the, the biggest thing to me was it allowed us to do more than we've ever. Being able to do about learning about our opponents. And if you want to spend the time and do the work, you can learn so many things about your opponents. But what it's really done is it's allowed us to go home. And we used to stay up and watch film with projectors and stuff like that. In order to watch film, you'd have to lug a projector and those big old canisters home when we were on film back in the uh, 70s and 80s and so forth. Uh, Now, all i got to do is, you know, I can leave school come home sit down as a coach grab my computer and I can be at the house and I can watch practice this afternoon boom just like that I can uh, watch whatever i pull up whatever I want to to watch on the opponent this week and it's just made it so much more convenient and allow you to go home be with your family a little bit more and uh, do do so much more than we used to to do that I know I had one coach I was talking about long ago he just said that the amount of time that Huddle saves coaches compared to what we used to do is just absolutely unbelievable. Um, and he's was talking about, you know, the ability to use video to prepare your team is so much greater than it was, and uh, Huddle just has revolutionized high school football and just given us more time with our families. I mean, that's what he was talking about. The technology today with all that stuff is just absolutely uh, uh, un- unbelievable and has changed high school football forever, forever. and out. I- I'll finish with this, you know, I always try to stay at the forefront of the technology thing. Now, some of it left me, (laughs) and I had to ask, you know, my sons and some of the other younger coaches about what was going on. But in 1984, I was the first football coach at T.R. Miller to ever use any kind of computer stuff. you guys, old guys, remember from the old days when we first got, like, the Apple computers and all that kind of stuff, remember the floppy disk? A big floppy disk, um, I, I bought a big floppy disk thing where, you know, I could go in and enter data on this and it, all it basically did was sort, but it would it would sort plays, it would sort formations. You know, I could go in and, and say, I'll give me all this team's plays from the left hash mark cause I had inputted hash marks and it, it would give me all that information. And so I was a defense coordinator, and when I was calling defenses, I used this to help us. And I don't mind telling you, I, it was ahead of the game, and it really did help me. It helped me to uh, do a better job of calling our defense to help our players win the game. And I just had more information, and I would say that year, I had more information than the guy across the sideline did. And, and I thought it really, it really helped us. And every Tuesday night, You know, you didn't have computers everywhere then. Every Tuesday night, I went to T.R. Miller High School in the computer lab, and he said, I took my floppy disk, I put it in, I entered all the data, got it all up in there, and then those big old boxes of, of, of computer printout paper, you know, I would start running that thing, and it would just be running through there. And so there were certain things I could do on it, you know, to give me information. Sometimes I had to literally go in there and count plays And I'd come up with percentages. You know, the ball's on the left hash mark. He's going to run to the left this amount of time. He's going to run to the right this amount of time. First and 10, he's going to run the ball 94% of the time. He's going to throw the ball 6% of the time. You know, that's pretty important for me to know. I'd load the box on first down because I know he's going to run the ball. We've come a long, long way here in what is now nearly 40 years. Uh, with with the technology stuff, but it has certainly changed football in a lot of different ways. So I still think that today the game's as great as it's ever been, as exciting as as it's ever been. A lot of the changes and things that have gone on and that have happened, I think have been for for the better. And for those things that are not as good as they used to be, uh, I think it's worth sacrificing to get some of the things that we have now. So high school football will continue to change. I can't tell you where it's going in the future. Uh, in the next 10 years, there may be as many changes uh, that have gone on as we've seen in the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, I just don't know. I don't know what direction it's going in. The only thing I can tell you is it will it will be changing. And the final thing I will tell you that no matter what the changes, if you want to win, sooner or later, you need to block and tackle. And if you don't do that, you're gonna have a hard time. No matter what the technology is, no matter what the parents are saying, no matter what social media is, none of that matters. Sooner or later, if you want to win, you got to block Dackle. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a minute with Coach Riggs.